earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me on A Word from the Word. Today we're up to session 19, and we've devoted considerable time in these sessions to scrutinize a particular group of well-known Bible passages, ones we thought meant one thing, but discovering that in their context they actually reveal something different, or in some cases, something deeper. If you missed any sessions, just go to faithtalk1360.com. Search the menu for a local program podcast, then scroll to a word from the word. Friends, I've also been reinforcing a truth linked to this series. Oh, that verse means that. Reinforcing or reminding ourselves of truths we've learned is a good exercise, right? Well, here's my reminder. The Bible has a story to tell, doesn't it? In fact, it's crying out, screaming out to tell us its story. But sadly, many times we preachers, teachers, and pastors, as well as Christians in general, make even force or manipulate the Bible to tell our story. And whether we do this knowingly or unknowingly, I still say, shame on us. Friends, in today's session 19, so what really happens when two or three gather? We'll have to grab our detective's magnifying glass once again and hold it over a passage that I bet we've said umpteen times, heard pastors, worship leaders, or prayer leaders spout out during a church worship service, prayer meeting, or fellowship time in or outside the church because today's text is Matthew 18:20 and the way most of us have likely heard it is from the 1977 NAS which says for where two or three have gathered together in my name there I am in the midst friends Matthew 18:20 is probably the ultimate example of a scripture text that indicts us modern day evangelical Christians who sure do love our breadcrumb verses don't we sure seems that many of us think that a breadcrumb a day will keep the devil away. Shame on us, brothers and sisters. We're living in dangerous times. We've got to start eating and digesting whole loaves of spiritual bread if we're going to ever become Bereans. You know, ones who search the scripture to see if these things preached or taught are actually really so. Jesus said it himself, didn't he? Mankind shall not live on crumbs alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Friends, false teaching has become rampant in our evangelical churches. And where are the Bereans of our day? Are we just sitting lazily in our church audiences and no longer have the discerning ability to notice false teaching from the pulpit? Now, unfortunately, Matthew 18.20 has both mild and radical ramifications. That is, well-meaning Christians who pray well-meaning prayers believe they're simply welcoming Jesus' presence in their midst when they gather together. 
This in itself is not wrong in essence, but as we'll see, our ignorance of the context of this statement by Jesus can plant the seeds for grave theological errors in thinking, errors that have found their way into aberrant Christian circles, particularly in certain false movements and false teachings in the church. And this is because Matthew 18.20 is not a standalone verse. It's linked to a broader context of Jesus' teaching in chapter 18 that begins at a minimum at verse 15. Verse 20, our verse under scrutiny today, then functions like a summary statement. The first word alone, for, should immediately alert us to the fact that this verse must at least be connected to the verse before it. And, friends, even the verse before it, verse 19, has been abused and misused as well, making it say something it never originally intended to say. Some Bible students even suggest that verses 6 through 14 might be the earlier context that helps to govern the meaning and interpretation of verses 15 through 20. Friends, I propose that at a minimum, the immediate context begins at verse 15. So in this light, let's look at Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. And let me just say here that brother may be extended to mean brother and sister or anyone in the body of Christ. The text continues, If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he doesn't listen to you, take one or two more with you. <clears throat> Excuse me. So that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. More accurately, the assembly, the gathered community or congregation. And if he refuses to listen even to the assembly, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind or forbid on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose or permit on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Or as the New Testament Greek crudely puts it, for where there are two or three having been gathered in my name, there I am in midst of them." Now, friends, before we attempt to analyze verse 20 through its context, let's consider a few logical points to test our thinking here. First, our use of this text in prayer can imply that God is with us only when two or more believers are gathered together. So what if I pray alone? Perhaps sincere believers are not meaning that, but it is a logical thought pattern that can have devastating theological effects on how we take and use this verse. It has become a springboard to false views on prayer and what we can or should expect from God. Second, we have ample teaching from Jesus on the value of one person praying by themselves. In Matthew 6, 6, he tells us to go into our closet alone and pray. Yet, in Matthew 26, 36, and 40, Jesus chooses to pray alone in spite of his disciples being there with him in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus wonders why they can't pray with him for an hour. Matthew 28, 20, Jesus says to his disciples, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. 
So, friends, Jesus affirms both solitary prayer and group prayer, no matter how small or large. We see this modeled in the letter of James. In James 5.16, we see both individual prayer mentioned with the effectual fervent prayer of one righteous person can accomplish much. And right before that, the verse says, pray for one another. And verses 14 and 15 call for the elders to pray over a sick person and their group prayer offered in faith will heal him. Third, verse 19 tends to make us think or believe that being with others increases the likelihood of God hearing and responding to our prayers. In fact, the more the merrier. And verse 19, the verse before our verse under scrutiny, actually adds insult to injury, as it leads us to think or believe that when two or more pray in agreement, God will surely give us what we ask. It's a done deal. Our God then becomes a genie in a bottle. My pastor in New Jersey used to put it this way. God is not our Burger King in the sky. You know, hold the pickles, hold the lettuce, hold the trials, don't upset us. Fourth, friends, we must honestly ask ourselves, is this verse even about prayer? And if it is, does God only show up and answer prayer when he has an audience? Before we even set out to pray, should we be finding two or three more people to join us? Is it possible that this verse has nothing to do with gathering believers together for a worship service, prayer meeting, a Bible study? Well, let's let, let, let's let the context come to the rescue and bring to the table the ingredients we need to sort out a biblical and contextual interpretation that accords with the evidence the text actually supplies for us. The first context we'll call to the witness stand is the textual context itself, being verses 15 through 18, verses Christians rarely, if ever, look at in relation to verses 19 and 20, and what they hope to claim or proclaim by using them in isolation. Jesus is quite clear on the matter at hand, a scenario with a personal relational appeal based on an offense of some type between two individual Christians, the offense being referred to as a sin, the operative phrase being, if your brother sins, the clear goal here for Jesus is the ultimate reconciliation between two Christ followers. In other words, the restoration of a fractured relationship brought on by one sinning against the other, causing a rift. But the original incident escalates because Jesus offers another option in case the original offender doesn't intend to reconcile. The solution Jesus offers is that the offended person invite one or two others to enter into the process, urging the offender to repent and reconcile. Well, we see that ultimately the Christian community must step in, as Jesus commands that if the offender doesn't acquiesce to the urging of two more people, he must be treated like a Gentile or even a tax collector. And here's where the Jewish cultural context breaks in. The final solution Jesus commands seems harsh to us modern-day, grace-occupied, and love-obsessed Christians. The first-century Jewish mind thought of non-Jews, Gentiles, as dogs, and not the man's best friend kind of dog either, one that is disgusting. And tax collectors? Jews thought of them as traitors. Tax collectors were Jews hired by Romans to collect taxes from their own people. 
once they collected the required amount, they could tack onto that whatever profit margin they wanted. Tax collectors were viewed as worse than sinners, so Jews kept their distance from both Gentiles and tax collectors. So, reading between the lines in Matthew 18:17, the social conditions demand that a sinning brother or sister in the end, if not willing to reconcile, should be shunned, the more modern term being excommunicated. Wow! But Pastor Tom, this doesn't seem very fair or loving. Friends, it actually is very fair and very loving. In our generation, we've totally lost the sense and meaning of community in the church. Jesus' seemingly harsh command was given to preserve and protect the unity and community of his body. Jesus' command seems outright and offensively bold to us because we no longer practice this and our churches have suffered and we don't even see it. We're now so spiritually dense. The second context is Jesus making a vital connection to an Old Testament law, quoting Deuteronomy 19, which is a legal and courtroom setting. Friends, please go to Deuteronomy 19, 15-21 and read this portion for yourself. After all, it's the underpinning of Jesus' instructions in Matthew 18. The subject matter here in this portion of Matthew 18 is exercising church discipline for an actively sinning member of the Christian community who refuses change and reconciliation. In fact, Jesus' actions here actually demand that we recognize just what he's doing. He's transferring the authority he received from his Father to the leaders of the new Christian community, what we call the church. Matthew's gospel is directed to the Jewish mind and so teaches that all authority has been given to Jesus. As Matthew 28:18 says, Jesus fulfilled the whole law. As Matthew 5:17 says, and Jesus gives the keys of the new kingdom of heaven to his emissaries, his apostles, after hearing Peter's confession that he was the Messiah, the son of the living God, as Matthew 16:19 says. So, friends, our present portion under scrutiny happens to reveal to us that Jesus is transferring his authority to his disciples. So, this prompts us to ask a very legitimate question, doesn't it? Is there evidence in another portion of the New Testament that backs this up? And the answer is a resounding yes. We see this practiced in the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 5 with a case of immorality and in the Thessalonian church in 2 Thessalonians 3, with a case of mere idleness. So, my friends, the context of Matthew 18.20 plainly communicates that this popular and poorly applied verse of Scripture is not at all about the guarantee of God's special presence at a corporate worship service, a prayer meeting, or a gathering to study the Bible. No! Rather, friends, this text is an affirmation of Jesus' deity and authority of his presence among the apostles and leaders in the new covenant church seeking unity and decision-making on matters of sin and discipline in a local Christian church. So, brothers and sisters, where are these shepherds? Where are these leaders who seek to obey Jesus Christ's instructions in this critical matter and lead and shepherd his church faithfully? 
In my over 30 years of pastoral ministry, I've experienced this lack personally and painfully as I sought to urge pastors and church board members to exercise their duty to lovingly confront and discipline a willfully and rebelliously sinning church member. And in one case, I labored long and hard, and the church leaders were resistant to following Jesus' clear instructions on how to proceed and what to seek. Listen to how Paul instructs Timothy, the pastor of the Ephesian church. And this refers specifically to leaders. 1 Timothy 5:17-21 say, The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those who work at preaching and teaching. For Scripture says, Don't muzzle an ox while he's treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it's brought by two or three witnesses. Ding, ding, ding. But those elders who are sinning, you are to reprove before everyone so that the others may take warning. I charge you in the sight of God in Christ Jesus and the elect angels. Notice, friends, whose authority he's acting under. Keep these instructions without partiality, and do nothing out of favoritism. Friends, I recall a situation where a pastor was sinning willfully and actively, and the church leaders discreetly asked him to resign, and kept his situation under wraps. This is blatant disobedience to the scriptural mandates. And friends, let me just slip in a third context here, the slightly broader context of Matthew 18, 10 through 14, the verses immediately preceding Jesus' instructions on what to do with a sinning believer, beginning in verse 15. There's a bridge Jesus makes to his instructions on disciplining a sinning believer. These instructions immediately follow his parable about the lost sheep, which deal with restoring someone who has gone astray. And furthermore, Jesus' instructions on restoring a sinning brother is followed by the parable of the unmerciful servant, which deals with being willing to cancel and forgive an outstanding debt. It's amazing when we're willing to pull out our detective's magnifying glass and examine the evidence before and after our text under scrutiny. What will we discover? Based on the parables surrounding Matthew 18.20, we discover the themes of forgiveness, restoration, and reconciliation with a brother or sister who has sinned against us or who has gone astray. Author Eric Bergerhoff, professor at Trinity College and former pastor, says, Jesus is saying that whenever the church is pursuing and is involved in a reconciliation process with someone who has refused to repent, they can rest assured that God's blessing is with them in their efforts. In other words, as the church renders the judicial decisions on matters of right and wrong that are based on the truth of God's word, they should be confident that they're doing the right thing and that Christ himself is right there with them, spiritually present in their midst. Liz Ald, managing editor of Crosswalk.com, adds that 
the original Jewish audience would have picked up on Old Testament references, which help us connect Matthew 18.20 in the larger passage. By understanding this context, we're able to understand the full meaning of the verses as the original audience did. Jesus is present with believers always, but he is also present in the particular circumstances of church discipline when done according to God's word and for his glory. Friends, I'll readily admit from my personal and painful pastoral experiences that we modern-day evangelicals have trouble with exercising church discipline, which is clearly taught in the New Testament. Personally, I'm convinced our churches today would be more healthy and more effective in their mission if we practically worked at holding each other more accountable and practiced it in accordance with the Bible's guidelines. We must realize that when we're born again, when we become Christians, we're automatically initiated into a community, a family of believers that should be willing to live in accountable relationships with each other. Friends, this is not an option. Jesus doesn't interview us when we become born again and say, So, would you like to join my club? No, we're automatically registered. And we should take a second look at our New Testament, how it's laid out. First we have the four Gospels, then the book of Acts, then Romans to Revelation chapter 3, all letters devoted to admonishing how we are to live in this new community established by Jesus. These letters all include some form of correction, discipline, teaching, admonishing, and exhorting us Christ followers to grow up and mature in Christ. Friends, there cannot and must not be what I call lone rangers in the church who live and act totally independent of others. I'd like to encourage you all to read the one another passages in the New Testament. You'll be amazed what they all say to us on how we're to act with one another. It's an eye-opening experience. So let me just reiterate a truth that has been weaving through our session today. When we take Matthew 18:20 and use this verse in a way that can inadvertently imply things we don't really mean, we're missing out on the incredible and practical true meaning of this verse. Friends, I'm convinced that the key question this text cries out for us to ask is, what do we rob this verse of when we merely relegate it or blurt it out indiscriminately at an assembled church service, fellowship time, prayer time, or even Bible study? Friends, we end up stealing this verse away from its vital use in challenging church matters that require restoration and reconciliation between believers in our local churches. Shouldn't we be yearning for Jesus' assurance that when we gather to bring correction, restoration, and reconciliation, that he is in our midst? Using Matthew 18.20 as cavalierly as we often do, aren't we disrespecting the Holy Spirit? A long time ago, I decided to dedicate my life to rightly dividing God's word, per 2 Timothy 2.15, and began taking James 3.1 seriously. Since the Holy Spirit is the author and inspirer of the Word of God, per 2 Peter 2, 20 and 21, doesn't he deserve respect when we read it, interpret it, and proclaim it to others? Jeffrey Curtis Poor, pastor and blogger and author of the site Rethink, offers three ways to apply Matthew 18, 20's meaning to us today. 
I heartily agree, and I'm happy to share them. First, follow Jesus' process. How many times has our church leaders overlooked Matthew 18, 15 through 20? Second, don't avoid difficult conversations. Hey, friends, conflict is a pain, isn't it? But Jesus makes it clear that when we ignore conflict, it festers and ends up hurting more than if we dealt with it early on. And third, trust in Jesus' presence. He promises us that when we follow his process, he'll be with us. We're not doing this alone. Friends, Liz Auld, who I quoted earlier, has a great prayer for the church. I'd like to close our session with a portion of her prayer. God, we ask for your help to set aside our differences and look to the greater cause, the cause of Christ. Help us to live out a life of love. This is only possible through the power of your Spirit. So move across our land in miraculous ways with fresh filling and awareness, turning your people back to you and drawing others to come to know you. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, we're at the end of today's program, which will close with an email where you may write me. One listener who's a cancer survivor responded to Part 18 with, Thanks for sharing. I, for one, look forward to my brand new body when God calls me home. That makes me deal with this life with a sense of hope and encouragement. Well, thank you for your inspiring testimony. And a word from the Word is a listener-supported program. Kindly consider financially helping keep this program on the air. Email me for the details. Well, thanks for listening today, friends. And remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with a word from the Word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at a word from the word at minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com. 